This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. When Recovery Centers of America at Devon opened its campuses on the main line and in South Jersey, they offered a new approach, local addiction treatment led by an expert, caring team of professionals. RCA has since helped thousands and leads the way in innovative programs and exceptional inpatient and outpatient care, all in a beautiful setting that allows for healing and recovery. RCA answers the phone and admits patients 24-7, 365, including the holidays. All admitted patients and staff are routinely tested for COVID-19. Call now at 1-888-RECOVERY. That's 1-888-RECOVERY. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, seven months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good morning and welcome on this fine Sunday. And whether we have rain or shine, it's beautiful because it's Mother's Day. So thanks for sharing your time. I'm Dr. Marianne Ritchie, your radio doctor. And as a special gift to mothers, especially those with the aches and pains of arthritis, I've invited one of my favorite doctors to join us, Dr. Marianthi Kiriakadu. She's an associate professor of medicine at Thomas Jefferson University here in Philadelphia, the director of the lupus program, and the director of the Division of Rheumatology. She's a noted author and speaker, a great mentor and teacher, highly respected for her research and treatment of systemic lupus erythematosus. She works closely with the Lupus Foundation of America, and Marianthi, welcome, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for this uh, lovely introduction. It is indeed a gift for me also to be invited here on Mother's Day and uh, have a chance to discuss arthritis with you and uh, share some of our uh, knowledge with with our audience. So thank you. Beautiful. Oh, thank you. Well, our goal today is to help our listeners understand For starters, the distinction between the most common form of arthritis, osteoarthritis, which is more common as we age, and then discuss the inflammatory forms of arthritis, which would be rheumatoid arthritis, gout, the arthritis associated with psoriasis. So shall we start with osteoarthritis and how you would describe that for our listeners? Absolutely. So osteoarthritis is the most common form of arthritis. Um, And... It might be that this end there in the word arthritis, the itis might uh, indicate that it belongs in the same category as all the other diseases that you mentioned, Marianne. But it is unique and different because it is not characterized by inflammation in the joints. It is rather characterized by a damage, a slowly, slowly evolving damage to the cartilage, to the soft cushion, Uh, that we all have in our joints. So the biggest difference between osteoarthritis and every other type of arthritis is that in osteoarthritis, we think 
up until now, we don't know what the research will show in a few decades. We think that there is no inflammation in the joint space. It's rather a slow, slow uh, damaging process. Now, whether or not we develop this as we age, so if it is a disease more prevalent as we age, um, it, it is more obvious as we age, but the damage for some uh, starts probably uh, much earlier than we think, maybe in the third decade, maybe even in the fourth decade. So if we pick a typical joint that might be affected, maybe a knee joint, and the bottom of the femur meets the top of the tibia uh, and fibula, the cartilage or the brake pad, as it starts to wear away, we're talking about metal to metal, and that's what causes the pain. Is that a pretty good image for people to have? Yeah, we're talking about bone <laughs> on bone, actually, as, uh, yeah. as often uh, um, our patients are referring to the osteoarthritis as a condition of bone on bone. Um, yes, exactly, and, and as the cartilage wears off, um, the pain begins. So probably in the early stages of osteoarthritis, the symptoms mm -hmm. are not as severe as much later when we really have true bone on bone. Sure. So I guess in the beginning, it's fairly predictable pain with high impact activities. As time goes by, it starts to interfere with daily activities. And then by the end, I guess the pain is exhausting and severely limits people's function. Yes. That is correct. That's such an accurate description, Marianne. So um, it did. And that is the reason that uh, some of uh, patients, uh, we, we can see on their x-rays the same degree of cartilage damage. But some patients, those that tend to be more active as their arthritis, their osteoarthritis progresses, their pain is really uh, more severe. Um, whereas other patients might have the same degree of cartilage damage, but not as a demanding lifestyle or not as active life lifestyle. And then the pain might not be as severe, although the stage of their osteoarthritis might appear similar by x-ray findings. Mm -hmm. So if I may bring up what we used to learn in medical school was the way you might distinguish it from inflammatory types of arthritis like rheumatoid is the pain is more um, evident after use and it's relieved by rest. So if a person has a busy day, they're uncomfortable late in the afternoon, early in the evening. Is that old school or is that pretty much still the case? That is very contemporary uh, definition of the osteoarthritic pain as opposed to the inflammatory arthritis pain. You are absolutely right. And still this is something that we uh, like to uh, make sure that all of the young physicians in training and patients who are diagnosed with osteoarthritis and all of us understand and, and same on the same page, uh, stay on the same page when we talk about the pain of osteoarthritis. Indeed, it is um, more severe, uh, the more uh, intense a person's activity is or the activity that involves the affected joint uh, and uh, tends to subside at rest. So we used to think uh, that it was from a trauma, a bad, a bum knee from football in, in high school or college, or if somebody has a job and they use those that back to lift boxes or whatever it is, the, the repeated use of certain joints might cause it. But we know there are other factors that play a role as well. What other um, factors might increase somebody's risk for osteoarthritis? Yes, uh, what you mentioned about the trauma predisposing to osteoarthritis is absolutely correct. But as you mentioned, it's not the only etiology. So as for pretty much most of the diseases, 
uh, that affect the, the joints and the connective tissue. There is some kind of a genetic predisposition. So um, oftentimes you will hear a patient saying, well, my mother had deformed hands from her osteoarthritis, and it seems to me that my hands begin to look a lot like my mother. So patients recognize and understand the genetic predisposition of osteoarthritis. Uh, another less well-known risk factor is actually the broad category of inflammatory arthritis. So someone who has an inflammatory process in their joint going on for years is pre predisposed to developing osteoarthritis earlier in their life. So rheumatoid arthritis can be a risk factor for an early osteoarthritis, a joint affected by constant uh, and not suppressed inflammation is at higher risk. Wow. So that poor soul is affected by osteoarthritis and rheumatoid. So you make the diagnosis with pretty classic x-ray findings, I would guess, yes? Correct. Correct. Mm -hmm. And really, the diagnosis of osteoarthritis doesn't require any kind of uh, advanced, sophisticated uh, imaging uh, uh, techniques. A simple, plain radiograph, a simple, good old x-ray can be enough to help us establish the diagnosis. And although we do, we tend to examine the fluid from uh, joints, from patients who have an uh, arthritic condition, it, the examination of the joint fluid is not necessary to establish a diagnosis of osteoarthritis. Mm -hmm. Simply and the I, symptoms and the x-ray findings. Mm -hmm. And I know physical therapy is essential. We want to reduce stiffness keep the person's weight down because that can increase the risk and help to stretch and strengthen muscles so to prevent falls, I'm sure, with age and decreased vision. Tell us, we have about a minute left, how do you treat it? What, do the, what are the medications that you would reach for? So the medications that we um, use in osteoarthritis are medications that usually address pain. They do not address the etiology of the disease. So we use non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications like um, Aleve and Ibuprofen. Um, we use medications like duloxetine who work on central pain pathways, uh, injections uh, of corticosteroids into the joints, and definitely we highly recommend and encourage uh, physical activity, physical therapy, and weight loss. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Kiriakadu from Jefferson. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Welcome back to Your Radio Doctor with our guest, Dr. Kiriakadu from Jefferson. Mary Anthony, we talked about treatment for osteoarthritis, and we know that um, we're somewhat limited with oral anti-inflammatory medicines like Aleve and, and Motrin, I shouldn't use the trade names, but ibuprofen and naproxen, um, because we want to protect people's GI tracts and their kidneys. So the up-and-coming uh, recommendation is Cymbalta. That's the drug that would be familiar to people. Tell us about that. It, it must block your pain receptors in your brain, yes? That is correct, and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to bring this very interesting change in the recommendations from the American College of Rheumatology that happened only maybe a year ago. So um, classically, um, 
if someone cannot tolerate the NSAIDs or have, as you mentioned, problems with their stomach or problems with their kidney or they are at high risk for developing kidney disease, the NSAIDs, although they are very effective pain medications, um, tend to be avoided. So our go-to medication, our second go-to medication used to be the Tylenol and still is a very important medication to keep the acetaminophen, to keep in our, um, in our uh, uh, list of medications used for uh, osteoarthritis. However, um, duloxetine, which uh, is not classic pain medication, it's actually an antidepressant that has an effect on central pain pathways, has been um, proven to uh, work pretty effectively in blocking those pain pathways that are um, stimulated, so to speak, uh, in patients who suffer from, uh, from uh, osteoarthritis or other chronic uh, musculoskeletal conditions. And uh, has been taking uh, the place of the acetaminophen as a more effective way to treat uh, osteoarthritic pain and does not come with a risk for um, uh, stomach ulcers or kidney disease, although in perhaps in elderly people does have its own set of potential risks, uh, primarily drowsiness, sleepiness, um, which is very important to consider in our elderly patients. But I think it's fascinating, the whole concept is when we want to uh, kill a virus or, or stop pain, there are different ways to do that. You can either uh, block the receptors, in this case, we're showing your brain a different way to perceive the pain. And I know um, steroid injections, uh, sometimes you inject the knee with steroids. With the hip, uh, you like to use an ultrasound to make sure you get it in the exact right place so you don't damage uh, you know, any, any area of the hip. So now let's move on to the inflammatory types of arthritis, or as we say, arthritides. Um, rheumatoid arthritis is probably the most common type of autoimmune arthritis. And I'd like to stop and explain the word autoimmune. I would say that your immune system makes the mistake of attacking or causing inflammation in healthy tissue. Is that pretty much how you would explain that to your patients? That's how I would explain it. There are rheumatologists that will use uh, almost um, a, a description calling, you know, an autoimmune disease is an allergy to self, correct? Perhaps this is a little bit of a stress. But uh, the whole idea is that the immune system is confused. And although it's destined to target bacteria, viruses, anything that is foreign to our bodies in autoimmune disease, it kind of tends its army against cells of our own body. Mm -hmm. And so unlike osteoarthritis, which I guess you see more often in the larger joints, rheumatoid seems to start in smaller joints like the wrist or small joints at the hands and feet. And I know my own mother had the little bumps with osteoarthritis closer to your fingernail, those distal uh, mm -hmm. connectors, which we call them Heberden's nodes, yes. But rheumatoid seems to go to your bigger knuckles up uh, closer to the palm of your hand, would you say? Correct. And it's an interesting uh, and yet uh, unresolved mystery as to why the osteoarthritis will affect in, in our same finger, correct, the, the more distal joint and the rheumatoid arthritis will affect the more proximal joints. Mm -hmm. So that re remains to be answered. But indeed, um, the rheumatoid arthritis tends to affect the joints of the knuckles and the middle joints of our fingers. And it will cause swelling, it will cause redness, it will cause warmth of the joint. So it's 
pretty easy to make the distinction from uh, the osteoarthritis that can cause swelling, especially in the knee, but it will not cause warmth of the joint. The joint will not feel hard to touch and it will not look red. So rheumatoid is a little more boggy, would you guess? Mm-hmm. 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 And then person has rheumatoid might wake up with stiffness. Um, And that might be a clue. If somebody has stiffness for a long time in the morning, these patients seem to get better with motion. And what other symptoms might they have? Maybe low-grade fevers, loss of appetite? Yes. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if we... uh, So let me... uh, kind of be a little bit repetitive here because I like very much that you made the distinction between the osteoarthritis and the rheumatoid arthritis. We spoke earlier about the osteoarthritis. We said that, you know, movement will exacerbate the pain um, in the affected joint. Quite the opposite happens with rheumatoid arthritis. You have a, a knee that is swollen and inflamed by rheumatoid arthritis, will be very stiff in the morning, but as the day progresses and as, as we move on, uh, with the daily activities, this uh, inflammatory pain tends to improve a little bit. Uh, I wouldn't dare to suggest that uh, movement is the answer, uh, but it does improve uh, a little bit. Now, other symptoms of inflammation, as you mentioned, is the uh, decreased appetite, weight loss, especially in advanced untreated cases. Um, sometimes skin rashes, although not so common in rheumatoid arthritis, sometimes fevers, and numerous other we call them constitutional symptoms, Mm -hmm. general symptoms that can happen in the context of an active immune system. Well, I guess if they get Sjogren's syndrome, which you would explain as uh, dry eyes and dry mouth, that could lead to constipation if your GI tract's a little dry. And and these patients Mm -hmm. get bumps on their elbows and their hands, too. Um, mm Mm-hmm. In, in, uh, the bumps on the on the hands are more uh, commonly seen in the rheumatoid arthritis. In the Sjogren's, which looks a lot like rheumatoid arthritis, you um, you don't expect so much of the bumps, but definitely you can get GI symptoms. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, the, from what I understand, the treatment has greatly improved, and I know, obviously, you want to provide relief from pain but you want to prevent that damage that happens to the joint with time with the chronic inflammation because once it's there, it's permanent. You can't reverse it. And then thirdly, you want to avoid steroids. I know sometimes you use steroid injections, but the new number one go-to is DMARD, Disease Modifying Anti-Rheumatic Drugs. Tell us about that. Mm -hmm. So nicely said, Marianne. So indeed, we we have... um, uh, Three aspects of the treatment goal in rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, One, the primary, the main aspect of of the treatment is to provide pain relief. That stays number one priority. Uh, But uh, as you mentioned, our second and equally important goal when we treat inflammation in the joints is to prevent joint damage. Uh, And rheumatoid arthritis can be very destructive and very disfiguring, deforming arthritis. We don't see that so much around us because um, there is such a a progress in in research in uh, in autoimmunity, in autoimmune diseases, and uh, that has given us a plethora really of medications and options that we have available to treat our patients and to treat them early on and aggressively enough to prevent joint damage and permanent deformity, deformities of the joints. Now, the third aspect of, of treating rheumatoid arthritis is 
doing that, providing pain relief and preventing joint damage in a safe way for our patients. So yes, we want to avoid prolonged use of steroids, of systemic steroids of prednisone taken by mouse because there is a myriad of potential risks. Uh, but we also want to be aggressive enough to prevent deformities, but not to subject our patients to unnecessary risks of infection, for example, or for toxicity to their uh, liver or to their kidneys, etc. So it's a balance between risk and benefit that we learn to navigate together with our patients. And that's why it's so important to, for people to stay on top of their visits. And, and we have to emphasize, too, physical therapy. I think people think if they get on a wonder drug, no, it also involves, especially with rheumatoid, low-impact um, exercise to lower the pressure on your joints. And then occupational therapy, that's an important distinction. I mean, occupational therapists can help you make your activities of daily living more efficient, right? If you... <laughs> You know, maybe hang a little towel next to your sink. You don't have to pick it up. You just, you know, wipe your fingers on that. Or so many neat little tricks to save steps for people that are in pain. And and so many little, uh, if you wish, uh, gadgets that you can, uh, you know, um, learn to use in your daily life and make your life easier for you are unfortunate enough to have already some kind of deformity with the hand joint. So sure. absolutely physical therapy, occupational therapy are mm. part of the treatment. And I know steroid injections, sometimes you just have to reach for a steroid injection. Are they safe for patients with diabetes? Might that increase the blood sugar level? Uh, they are safe. Uh, mm -hmm. the, usually we don't inject more than one or two joints at a time. We don't use very high dose of systemic ser of uh, uh, steroids that we inject. And the steroids that are injected, there is minimal, if any, systemic absorption. So uh, there is no risk for exacerbation of diabetes by doing steroid injections. Thank goodness. So let's take a little break and maybe we could spend a minute when we return about juvenile arthritis. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed on odyssey.com. Listen to the show at your convenience. Go to odyssey.com and in the search bar, type in Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. Back on your radio doctor. Mary Anthony, we wanted to give us a minute or so to juvenile arthritis, uh, juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, and how that differs from adult rheumatoid arthritis. So, uh, juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis is uh, fairly common. Uh, one in every 1,000 children uh, may be affected by this form of arthritis. I'd say that the cardinal difference is that um, while there are specific laboratory studies that are positive in patients, in adults with rheumatoid arthritis, in, uh, in uh, children with uh, juvenile idiopathic arthritis, uh, those tests are negative. Now, there are similarities. So the juvenile idiopathic arthritis can affect uh, many joints like rheumatoid arthritis, but can also affect just one or two joints. So there are categories. We, we categorize the juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis into uh, arthritis that can um, affect the one or two joints, more than one or two. It can be polyarticular, it can be oligoarticular, it can be just joint symptom or it can, like uh, systemic adult rheumatoid arthritis, be associated with fevers, with rashes, sometimes with inflammation in the eye. 
Mm. It just uh, involves the whole body. I, I wanted to spend a quick minute on gout because that too is an inflammatory arthritis. And, and I remember again in medical school that we studied that it's called the disease of emperors and not because emperors party a lot, but probably because the, the line of succession is genetic and really gout and correct me if I'm wrong is from an overproduction of uric acid or else kidneys that decide not to clear it. So an increased level of uric acid in your blood causes this joint damage. And so alcohol can maybe cause a flare, but if somebody shouldn't be embarrassed if they have gout, because people will think it's because they drink too much alcohol, right? Isn't it pretty much genetic? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so you're right. I, I wouldn't say that uh, uh, gout is exclusively a disease of people who consume uh, alcohol in excess. No. Uh, but um, it is traditionally, and it, it can be found in the in the historic document documents as the disease of the wealthy, and that has a lot to do with the conception of uh, meat, of seafood, of in general a high pouring diet. So mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, individuals with gout either overproduce uric acid, and you alluded to perhaps a genetic predisposition, but sometimes they under-excrete, so the kidneys don't uh, get rid of the excess uric acid, which tends to stay in the, in the blood. Uh, and if it stays there, it's no problem, but has that tendency to go and hide in the joints, and that's when the uric acid is really mm. causing problem. So your big toe can be really nasty. So if you love your big toe, you might want to cut back on your shrimp and lobster. Absolutely. Absolutely. So now here's your very favorite. Let's talk about lupus and how you can explain that to people, the definition and the common symptoms. So uh, a way to describe lupus is um, that although it is an autoimmune disease, like rheumatoid arthritis is, um, it is a reaction of the immune system against self that can pretty much affect every organ. Mm -hmm. um, so the way um, I usually describe it is that although lupus has the potential to affect pretty much every organ, it doesn't mean that it will help in a patient's lifetime. So it's not a spectrum, and you don't start with mild lupus ending up with severe lupus, not at all. It's just different flavors of the disease that each individual patient get, gets. So um, it's a very uh, personable disease, if you will, it's very individualized disease. You rarely can find two lupus patients having exactly the same presentation and exactly the same manifestations. Well, that's very reassuring to people because uh, the list of possibilities is not very appealing. And so, I know you mentioned if, if a person has uh, four of the criteria, how, how do you make the diagnosis um, usually? Hmm. So, um, so that's actually a, a wonderful, very basic but wonderful question and gives me the opportunity to, to say that in my opinion, diagnosing lupus is a very straightforward process. So if the typical manifestations of lupus are there, putting it together, it's a very, very simple process. Um, so the most common manifestations are skin rashes, 
joint pain, but joint pain having the characteristics we just discussed in mm -hmm. rheumatoid arthritis, the characteristics of an inflammatory arthritis, so more severe in the morning, stiffness in the morning, improving as the day progresses. Uh, the joints may or not, may not be uh, swollen. The, the inflammatory arthritis in lupus is not as striking as it is in rheumatoid arthritis. So sometimes the patients do have the symptoms of an inflammatory joint pain, but they don't, the joints don't look as prominently swollen as they can look in rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, inflammatory arthritis, fevers, again, weight loss, loss of appetite, and then um, hair loss, it's, it's uh, very common in lupus and can be variable. So some people will have uh, just the thinning of their hair, some people will have patchy hair loss, areas of hair loss. And, and this also is not always the same type of hair loss. Um, we will have individuals that lose their hair and as they go into treatment and they receive appropriate care from dermatology and rheumatology, their uh, hair loss subsides and, and there is no permanent damage. And there are forms of lupus that can create a little bit more severe issues, both with the skin as with internal organs. Mm -hmm. So, and you said that the arthritis is typically moderately painful, but not usually deforming. And I, I really liked what you mentioned. We had a nice chat the other day, and you said uh, a fairly typical scenario, you, you often see a young woman who comes in because she's learned that she has a positive blood test called the ANA. Tell us what that means, because it's usually not as worrisome as, as a patient might think. So ANA is an acronym uh, standing for anti-nuclear antibody. So um, our immune system produces antibodies and, and it's expected. So we all have circulating normal antibodies. We call them immunoglobulins and uh, we have also specified immunoglobulins. And this is a sophisticated way that our immune system has to, to um, protect us from, from, uh, from infections. The anti-nuclear antibodies are immunoglobulins, are antibodies that the immune system um, is uh, generating against components, against the nucleus of cells of an individual that has an autoimmune tendency. But the detection of the positive ANA does not necessarily mean that an individual has lupus. It is a red flag and it means that this individual's immune system has this tendency to act against cells. So there is an autoimmunity that is detected by the ANA. And then depending on the context of the clinical symptoms, um, there might be an autoimmune disease present, or there might be just simply autoimmunity, just a positive ANA with no symptoms and no clinical manifestations to establish a diagnosis. So quite often, a positive ANA is not the threat that it, it sounds like. It's not a sentence to looking forward to developing lupus, because most of the time it doesn't uh, blossom into a full picture of lupus. Am I right? Absolutely. Uh, so especially um, when this ANA is not very, the concentration, so to speak, of that ANA in the, in the patient circulation is not very high. So we have what we call low titer ANA. This ANAs tend to be non-specific, uh, and they are not, most of the times, they are not evolving into lupus or into any other type of systemic autoimmune disease. Mm -hmm. And this is a very important, I think, piece of information to share 
with our audience because I do realize how dreadful the results of a positive ANA might sound, especially now that uh, lupus and in general autoimmune diseases are more uh, are better understood and more well known. And if there is any positive to COVID, which certainly there are not, we call it lessons learned. Now that the general public hears more and more about the immune system, I think they're starting to understand some of these nuances that you describe. Lastly, in terms of lupus, I know sometimes when a woman has more than one miscarriage, that's a factor you look for. Isn't there a blood study that relates to a lupus antibody that can lead to miscarriages? Yes, actually, it's a panel of antibodies and uh, an essay. So not only antibodies, but essays are involved in assessing a young uh, uh, individual, a, a woman that uh, might uh, be unfortunate enough to have recurrent miscarriages. So this panel is called antiphospholipid antibody panel, and it is strongly recommended to be checked in individuals that have more than uh, two or three first trimester miscarriages or even just one and uh, late trimester miscarriage. Mm -hmm. So at least we know and we can help uh, hopefully prevent a miscarriage in the future. We have about 30 seconds left and we have to squeeze in Lyme disease. It's that time of year, late spring, early <laughs> summer, when those little, those little cooties are out there in, in mice and deer. Don't forget they're in mice as well. It used to be called Borella, and now I understand it's called Borreliella. It's not Borella anymore, it's Borreliella. <laughs> On that note, we'll take a little break and come right back. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented in part by Recovery Centers of America. When needed, call RCA 1 888 Recovery. And in our final segment with Dr. Kiriakado, we're going to talk a little bit about Lyme disease because it's late spring, early summer. So what would a Lyme tick look like? I think in this season, it'd be the size of a poppy seed, but later in the summer, early into the fall, it turns into a sesame size, uh, sesame seed size tick. And um, we tell people to take the tick off very carefully, use a fine tip tweezer and pull the tick off by its head slowly and gently. And what's the typical skin lesion that we might see, we might not, but uh, is it the bullseye? The bullseye, it looks like a target uh, mm -hmm. also. It has this uh, rim, that ring uh, in the periphery that looks red, and then there is more clear skin, and then there is uh, redness again in the center. So if someone has spent time outside in the woods and uh, felt a tick bite or not, uh, and uh, wakes up uh, and sees something unusual, a large, big, large, round-looking lesion, redness on the on the skin, definitely needs to measure. Mm -hmm. to, to so it's a, that circle of redness can come up days later, even weeks later, and it could go unnoticed, but if it's not treated, if a person does have the infection, maybe weeks later they might have fever, body aches, joint or muscle ache, enter rheumatology, uh, headache, weakness, and if, if it's not treated months, even years later, if a person comes to your office with pain and, and swelling in their knees, you might tap them and get fluid to make the diagnosis. But the concern is if we don't treat it, it can affect the nervous system with numbness and tingling in arms and legs or trouble with memory or concentration. So the blood test, tell us about that because they're not always reliable. Hmm. Uh, 
Well, again, it's it's fairly straightforward if one is willing to look at this blood test in in, in a very strict way. So, we have um, a Western blot. That's the the way this technique is uh, called that analyzes these antibodies against various components of this pathogen that cause Lyme disease. And um, we, uh, the, the way that the results on that Western blood look like, they look like little small bands. So you can have uh, a certain number of positive ba bands, of positive Western blood bands to have a, a clearly established Lyme disease. And if you don't meet that number of the bands, then very clearly you don't have Lyme. So uh, mm -hmm. that's a very important point because oftentimes patients will have one or two bands. It has to have the number of bands that are mm -hmm. uh, determined, predetermined. Mm -hmm. Important distinction, sure. Mm -hmm. So be sure when you come in, listeners, check your scalp, waist, armpits, groin, the back of your knees after you've been outdoor for a while and check your children. So in our final moment, let's talk about websites. Uh, Marianta, you told me the other day the American College of Rheumatology is a beautiful website, such great information. The Arthritis Foundation, Lupus Foundation of America. Tell us about those uh, resources. So the American College of Rheumatology website is a, a very well-organized website. And uh, I wanted to make sure that it's well known that it has, it puts substantial effort in uh, putting um, uh, information on pretty much all the diseases that the rheumatologist treats. Mm -hmm. And this information is on purpose, concise, um, they uh, made it now that it is only one page and it uh, uh, contains essential uh, uh, data on a specific disease. At Beautiful. the same time, they have information on medications or even um, on uh, rheumatologists in uh, uh, certain areas, so it's a very well uh, kept and very well uh, uh, done uh, website. Uh, well, Mary Anthony, I, I have to let you go. I'm so sorry because I'm going to have you back someday. But for our listeners, rheumatology.org, lots of great information. Mary Anthony, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough. Thank you. It was all a pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you, Maria. Mother's Day to all our listeners, those who are mothers, and all of you who nurture and embrace someone who's missing their own mother. Maybe you're an aunt, a teacher, a big sister, or brother. Thank you for sharing your love and making children feel safe, secure, and valued. Personally, I've always loved Mother's Day. As a school child, I remember being part of the beautiful Catholic tradition called the May Procession. We'd say the rosary to honor Mary, the Blessed Mother, who looks at all of us as her children. Each year, we celebrate with our three children and now grandchildren, which include two-year-old Tommy, six-week-old Everett, and born this week on Cinco de Mayo, four-day-old Teresa Mary. Happy Mother's Day to our daughter Vicky and our daughter-in-law Nikki and my dear sisters and nieces. My very special gift came in 1993. Our precious mother spent her final days in the hospital. We gathered around her bedside on Mother's Day, the last time she spoke. She was weak. Not able to say much, but when I asked the question, do you love me? Her crystal blue eyes did the talking as she struggled to whisper, yes. They say the most common word on a dying person's lips is mother. Cherish the love of your mother. Remember, it was she who gave you the gift of life. Make sure you thank her today. Let her know you're grateful. And if you're not on good terms, maybe this is a good time to call her, even send a note. 
reach out and try to mend fences. And if your mother's no longer with us, pay your gratitude forward. Share your motherly love with someone who needs a hug. Thanks for listening. Next week, our special guest is Dr. Eva Chalice, professor from NYU and the current president of American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. We'll discuss screening for gynecology cancers. Visit our website, yourradiodoctor.net. Hear today's shows and all of our shows. Send us a story of your real champion. Check out my latest article in Philly Voice about heartburn called What Goes Down Might Come Up. Now sit back with your mama and listen to her favorite Frank Sinatra tunes. And always remember that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production. If you're interested in learning more about the power of the radio hour, contact Joe Krause at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded.